Welcome to the Collections by Michelle Brown show. A show about people living between the lines, standing boldly in the crosshairs of their intersectionality as they create change. This episode is brought to you in partnership with the Center for Peace Counseling and Holistic Healing Services. Collections by Michelle Brown. I'm your host, Michelle Brown. Each week, we'll be talking with people living between the lines, standing boldly in the crosshairs of their intersectionality, and creating change. Today, I'm joined by Brandon Xavier Roach. Known by most as Roach the Muralist, Brandon Xavier Roach is a Seattle-based artist of color was determined to provide a creative outlet for his community. Born and raised in the South Bronx of New York City, Roach decided to visit a friend who just moved to Seattle. After seeing all the murals in the waterfront, he decided to stay. Roach attended Alfred University, a small comprehensive university in Western New York, where besides art, he also took up equestrian studies. His love of horses took him to Canada and Michigan, where he honed his cowboy skills and picked up the love of harmonica playing. But art remained his first love. Since he graduated from Alfred University, his art has been showcased across the United States. Roach has collaborated with artists in London and Australia, in addition to teaching classes at some of Seattle's most elite visual art institutions including the Gage Academy of Arts and Seattle Art Museum. His work has also been showcased in New York's Robert C. Tanner Gallery, the factory in Seattle, Base Experimental Art Space, and he's been published in The Stranger Magazine and City Arts. Roach continues to explore and develop new ways to approach his craft, In his personal practice, he grabs a lot from graffiti and minimalism. He's building a personal library of images to express ideals, narratives, or messages. He believes public art is the ideal art form because there's no elitism. Its purpose is to bring communities together and encourage creativity. Roach is personally extremely interested in the development of rotating walls short-lived murals that would be ever-changing, allowing there to be a conversation within the community based on the politics, weather, science, and other social constructs that can be tackled by local artists and even visiting artists. Roach recently brought his talents to the set of Danny Terrell's Black Boys, creating ephemeral murals contribute to the dance piece. Roach Welcome to Collections by Michelle Brown. How are you today? I'm doing pretty good. I'm happy to be here. Thanks for having me. Well, I'm I'm glad to have you. You know, I was talking, I'd known Danny Terrell. I mean, it was funny. I don't know how long I've known him because then he told me that it had been 10 years since he moved out there. I was going like, wow, we've known each other a long time. <laughs> and he was telling me that, you know, he first met you, he said that you, you play the harmonica. And in conversation, it came out that you were an artist, 
And, you know, so then you became involved in his project. And he also said, you know, and, you know, he's got roots from Michigan. He lived in Saginaw for a while. And he said you were an equestrian. So, I mean, you know, and I know that you went from New York to to Seattle. What, other than, you know, your friend doing it, what was your first impression going from, like, the East Coast to, what is it, the Pacific Northwest? Uh. I mean, right off the bat, people around here are just a lot friendlier and mm. more open to people who follow through. Because I, I got a show not even trying, like, within the first week that I was sleeping on my friend's couch just because I told the person that I was going to email them the next day and they were surprised that I followed through. Huh. And <laughs> that was, that was kind of all it took. And one thing led to another. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so... When, you know, I mean, that's, that's just, like, amazing, like, because when you think of, you know, you talk about you do murals, and a lot of them are based on graffiti, well, I mean, often people think of that as, like, a New York thing. I mean, mm-hmm. how do murals differ from what you were doing in New York to what you're seeing there? Well, I think my original introduction to the arts was the graffiti around me, like the kids in my neighborhood. I grew up in the mm-hmm. South Bronx, and there were no, you know, there were no fine art classes. There was no community art classes. So it was just a lot of spray paint and writing your name over and over again. And uh, an art teacher that I had at my high school told me that I should apply to art college. And I didn't have any sketches of portraits or anything, so I just submitted some of the graffiti that I did. And then I got this some um, nice hefty scholarship to this art university, and I just kind of continued to paint on walls. Hmm. You know, I work with a a youth program, and um, one of the things that we incorporated in it was to do murals. And Mm. I was talking to another person who moved to Seattle from Michigan, and she was telling me, like, she said, you know, that mural that your kids did on the back, and we checked, you know, at that point it was like, you know, we want kids to do murals. Can we use your wall, you know? And for some people, it was like a, a leap of faith because I was like, you know, they're <laughs> yeah. just muralists. They're, they're not professional muralists. But she was saying that like here, and she said like it's been like 20 years, and she said that mural had never been tagged. She said and I, she didn't probably need some work, but she mm. talked about how that mural brought people together in the neighborhood, in the community do you find, you know, and I know that you talk a lot about, you know, when I'm introducing you about murals and their impact on communities, do you find that, that they have that, you know, attraction, that, that, that quality of bringing people together? Honestly, I think it's one of the few art forms that excels in that department because when I was growing up, I didn't know that there was another career for a young person of color that was artistic other than music. I've been surrounded by black creatives in the Bronx, but they were all aspiring rappers or beat makers. Mm. And from, from what I understood is that black people don't paint unless it's graffiti. So to see murals in the community and see that, that the people in the murals look like me and that there's artists in the community who are making things like kind of encouraging people to explore the other facets of creativity that there are, I think that's, that's really powerful. Because you can't not, like, 
young kids don't have the accessibility to walk into galleries and have profound impacts by like famous works of art. So I think this is a pretty good substitute. Very accessible. Do you, you know, cause like, you know, and I was saying how initially we had a hard time, like, you know, asking somebody, you know, well, you've got this wall. Can we, can we do it? And the fact also that it was young people, you know, it was mm-hmm. like, well, they were looking for certain things, but one of the, the, really reason why the longevity of the murals lasting was like sometimes when we would go in there, we would bring the neighborhood, you know, and say, what do you want to see this express? What about you? Do you want to do? And sometimes your murals tell stories. Mm -hmm. Is that how, you know, do you find that when you're, especially, you know, now that you're doing like in more community spaces, are you telling that neighborhood story? I, I think it is kind of hard not to because mm-hmm. when you're coming into a space and like putting up something that is for all intents and purposes permanent and going to be a reflection of that neighborhood, it's important to kind of like soak in the space and kind of see the vibes and the kind of characteristics of the community and to kind of work off of that. Mm-hmm. Now I have to ask you about the harmonica plane because you know, when you think about harmonica, I mean, I, I sort of think, you know, like the, the movie and, and it's the lonely scene and the guy is playing the harmonica, you know, mm-hmm. and, and how did you, how did you come to play the harmonica? Well, when I was um, going to university in upstate New York, I, within like the first two weeks, I realized that I needed to sign up for a PE class and mm-hmm. the only one that was available was in the equestrian department. And I wasn't fully aware of what that meant. So I went up to the first day of class and I saw people just kind of hanging out and it just seemed like you just kind of rode horses all day and, <laughs> out and just looked at the beautiful scenery. And I was like, I can get behind this. And then I met a, a friend of mine named Joey who always had a harmonica in his pocket. And I didn't really like enjoy his playing, but I loved the fact that he was playing it. And then one day we went to like the local pawn shop and then I bought one and then he and I kept going back and forth trying to to see who could learn the most songs. And it's just such a convenient little instrument to always have in your pocket. It's kind of hard not to bring it with you everywhere. And then you progressively get better and then you meet people like Danny who are like, you should probably have shows and play for people and charge for tickets and whatnot. Yeah. What what, what genre of music do you play on it? Uh, I play um, like traditional, traditional country, like borderline ah. country, country blues. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, that, that's nice. I, I like that. You know, I don't know. I've heard um, recently, I like that, that that's sort of, there's, there's something about, there's something about that, that certain old, you know, like you said, mm. traditional country and that music that sometimes it's kind of gets to you and it's like really kind of, kind of cool. You know, um, I would, recently uh, had someone introduce me to this artist. Her name is Valerie June, and she's mm. African-American. Yes. But she she's isn't, and, you know, I love that. You know, I mean, <laughs> I'm sitting there, and I have friends who go like, I don't know if I can quite get with that. But there's something about, you know, there's something yeah. about that, that, that bit of Appalachia that mm-hmm. coming through. So when, when you sit down and you play that, do you have people sort of like give you that, that look like, what you doing? <laughs> uh, often I don't really play in front of people. Like I'm, the only times that I turn 
towards the harmonica is in times of like oversaturation from the visual art world. If I need a break mm-hmm. and I need to be creative in a way that doesn't affect my career, I'll turn to the harmonica and I'll go to the park, find someone nice and quiet, or I'll sit in my apartment and look out the window and I'll just play for myself for a little bit. Or if friends ask me to partake in shows, it's this mm-hmm. kind of an instrument that can get pretty annoying if you just keep, you know, pulling it out every five minutes around your group of friends, especially <laughs> if you don't know how to play. Yeah. Mhm. Oh, uh, you know, and and you know, you're about uh, maybe like the third person I know who didn't go like, well, who's this Valerie June? Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. No, I, you pr- I pride myself on on knowing the few a few out mm-hmm. there. Mm-hmm. So Danny also said, he said, you know, he's a black cowboy. Now, I don't think you, do you, <laughs> do you consider yourself a black cowboy or how I, involved with horse riding did you get? I, I would make that, I would mark that down as one of my like pillars mm-hmm. of my, my character. Uh, I competed in my school's um, varsity riding team where you would uh, do a walk, trot, canter and basically just, general horsemanship and you got I won a couple ribbons and then after that I was offered an apprenticeship up in Ottawa Canada where I spent a couple months working with this uh, saddle maker who took me to like a couple Canadian rodeos which were a lot of fun and I learned how to rope up there and it was just it was genuinely good time and then after all this I was offered a job in Michigan on Mackinac Island to uh, be a tour guide and manage horses. And then after a year and a half of that, they promoted me to a barn manager where I was responsible for like 24 horses and like 16 drivers and making sure everyone was fed and vaccinated and taken care of. Had you been exposed to horses prior to going to college? Uh, in the, as, as sad as it may seem, there is in fact a Bronx Equestrian Center and I did not spend much time there, but the time that I did spend there are definitely like ingrained memories. It was just like this little patch of dirt with these two very sad horses who were just kind of hanging out, who had no real discipline and no real diet. They just kind of wandered around and people showed up and just kind of looked at them. I'm pretty sure they just like pulled wedding carriages around like once a month. Mm-hmm. But yeah, it was pretty close to my house. Because so. hmm. I go to the Bronx, I didn't know that, you know, is it still there? I'm, yeah, I'm pretty positive it's still there. Okay, next time I go there, I'm going to put on my short list of things to look and find out about the Bronx. What would you, you know, so, I mean, what would you say, because I know uh, I have friends, and I, I said, you know, do you want to check the horses? They're big and everything. What did you learn from that experience? I'd say I learned how to be the appropriate amount of uh, self-confidence to have. Because one of the um, early lessons that we had was we were forced to walk into a pen with a loose horse and claim your space through your body language. And if you didn't walk in there confident, chest up, you know, shoulders squared, then that horse would just kind of run laps around you. Mm. And I think being in tune to that kind of like reading of body language and reading of other people, it just kind of gives me a little bit more power when I like walk into a space. Mm-hmm. You know, it, it's, it's interesting because, like, one of the things, you know, that Danny and I talked about, and we talked about, like, here we have, like, this Ruth Ellis Center, and there are kids who who dance a lot, and sometimes people just, like, want to blow it off. But there can be 
these experiences outside of, you know, the classroom or what, where you're interacting, you with horses, they with dancing, that it gives you that, like you said, that sort of poise, that ability to to walk in that room and to have self-confidence. Yeah. And, you know, so, yeah, it is. It's really important. So, you know, when you got to, and I also think it's like pretty, you know, you went to Seattle, you liked it, and you said you responded immediately to an email, and, you know, and it's opened up that whole door. When you went yeah. to visit your friend in Seattle, had it been your intention to stay, to stay there, or were you just like, you know, hey, I'm just going to check this out? I was only supposed to be here for a weekend, and I was supposed to head back to New York with plans to move to Pittsburgh, but I came here, and I just, like, I dropped everything. I mean, it's not the first time. My parents... When I told them I'm, I'm staying in Seattle, they weren't even the slightest surprise because all those trips to Canada and those trips to Michigan, they knew I wasn't going to hang around on the East Coast forever. But mm-hmm. Seattle is the first spot I've landed in the West Coast, and I've been here for about maybe a year and some change, and I still haven't seen anything else. I haven't been to California, haven't been to Vancouver, haven't been to San Fran, none of it. I've just been in Seattle, running around in circles. Yeah, and, and you know, the other thing is like, Often, like if you talk to like, you know, people who are in the arts or whatever, it's like either they want to get to New York right quick or they want to get to L.A. But you found your niche in Seattle, and it seems to be really a a good place for you. Um, But it's different, isn't it? As, you know, as someone coming from an urban area to being in Seattle, aren't there like big differences? Because I think of, you know, if I think of New York, I'm thinking of, like, maybe R&B, hip-hop, graffiti. Mm-hmm. When I think of Seattle, I'm thinking, you know, nirvana, grunge, <laughs> peacefulness, you know, really kind of peacefulness. Um, yeah. So what was that adjustment like, or do you, where do you still consider home? Um, I've, I've always been pretty nomadic. I've, I can kind of call anywhere home. I don't really, like, have a definitive spot. But as for Seattle, it's just been really open to any and every idea that I have. Like, in New York, like, the first show that I pitched here in Seattle and was immediately accepted was I wanted to walk into a gallery space with a utility belt full of spray paint and Mm -hmm. graffiti markers, and I wanted to cover the gallery, the floor, the walls, and a few nude models. And they said, can you do this on Saturday? And I was like, yes. Oh, wow. Mm-hmm. Right? It just instantly. And I pitched mm-hmm. that show in New York about maybe six or seven times, and everyone's just like, who do you think you are? You, you don't have enough uh, of a career to just walk into a space and do that. But Seattle has just said yes at every turn. Wow. Uh, have you met anybody, you know, I'll tell you one of the, because yeah, I have this, this these kids doing this mural, one time they were like in, um, have you met anyone interesting? Uh, the story I was going to tell you is that these kids were working on this mural in southwest Detroit, which is like uh, heavily Latino. And while they were doing it, this, this an older gentleman came up who was, you know, like they were doing it. He was, you know, he said, you know, can I participate and, and help you? And they were like, oh, hey, cool. And it turned out this guy had been, when his youth, he had helped Diego Rivera on the mural in 
the DIA, which everyone comes to. And like now here he was this old guy, but he wanted he still wanted to get in there and mural. Have you met that's anyone awesome. interesting and fascinating that sort of like connected the history of muralism? Uh, I am not going to lie to you. Every time I do a mural, I keep my headphones in because every mm. five seconds someone wants to come up and tap you on the shoulder and distract you from what it is that you're trying to do or everyone's got jokes and they're like, oh, you spelled that wrong. And I'm like, <laughs> nothing. I got to climb down uh-huh. from my ladder to double check. And yeah, so once, I'm, once I start, I'm just kind of in the zone until I'm done. Wow. Uh, okay. Uh, that makes sense. You know, well, like I said, we were community people. So, you know, we were having everybody doing that. <laughs> was, you know, do you ever find in that tradition, though, when you do that, or, you know, when you think of New York, you know who I'm, who I'm going with, you know, Jean-Michel mm-hmm. Basquiat. Do you ever have anyone sort of say, oh, try, try to put you in that, that group or I, compare I get, I get you put- to? I get put in that box pretty often, um, mm-hmm. especially when I was in university. I was the only person of color in my entire graduating class, but I was also like the most prolific and I was constantly working and everyone was like, oh, he's striving to be Jean-Michel Basquiat. Honestly, I'm striving to have a better career than Jean-Michel Basquiat. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. He, he was definitely exploited by the people who promised him a successful career. They did deliver on the successful career, but they also delivered with uh, terrible drug habits, which led to his death and just bad environment. He was mentally unstable and he had a lot of, he had a lot of personal issues that just weren't addressed because people knew they could still make money off of him, even in this dark time. And I would like to be a more positive representation of black painters. Oh yeah, definitely. Because it was, I mean, when you look at the work and then you look at the whole story of it, there was a lot of, like you said, there was exploitation. I mean, there are people who made more off of him in his death, you know, who have basically pimped his trauma. Yeah, you know. Mm -hmm. How do you, when you were in school particularly, when you have people come to do that, you know, because sometimes, particularly when you're the only person of color or one of few, that they want to put us in a box and sort of say, well, you're like this, you're like that. How do you break out of that or have those real conversations and, and to honestly say what you just said? You know, it's like, yeah, okay, yeah, he was great and all of that, but, you know, this is the real. I think just understanding that, like, yes, it is very important to look up to the artists who came before you, but remember not to lose yourself, trying to aspire to be them. Because if you just kind of stay true to you and do whatever it is that you want to do, because that's all they were doing in the first place. John Michelle wasn't trying to be anybody else. He was just doing the things that he thought sounded cool and sounded fun and thought which colors looked good together, and he just kind of threw it up there. He wasn't trying to pretend. And I feel like a lot of painters, especially black painters today, can't help but put themselves into that box of, oh, I'm this kind of painter. I'm that kind of painter. It's like, I just keep making work for the fun of it, you know. Mm-hmm. But, you know, and to be true to yourself with what you're doing, when you have everyone, people are always like, you know, want to commercialize you, want to take you from that. I mean, right. and, you know, there's the real part that, yeah, you do have to, you want to have, you know, take care of yourself and do that. 
but not to be exploited like that. How do you keep that balance or set your own personal priorities of what you consider success, what do you consider wealth, as opposed to these people who might want to come in and go like, oh, my God, look at this. You know, we could make you, you know, a multimillionaire if we put it on, you know, the side of a bus. Yeah, uh, I have absolutely no desire to be a multimillionaire. Like mm. my first few months in Seattle, I was sleeping on a ha- on a hammock, and I couldn't be happier. Mm-hmm. And I like eating rice and beans for dinner, and I have no desire to go to any fancy gallery. I have no desire to rub elbows with such and such. I was just talking to Danny about this the other day. It was like, would you rather be famous? Or would you rather be successful? And I would, above all else, just like to be successful. Because successful means that you can continue to do what makes you happy and mm-hmm. live your life. That's all I want. So. Mm-hmm. And when you see, you know, the impact that the mural has on the community, or maybe you see, you know, it inspires a next generation or people to come together about that, I mean, that's success. You know, you, you've, exactly. you've done your work and people appreciate it. People can see themselves and that people talk about it. And, you know, that's important. That's so important and to, to mm. do that and to not get sort of caught up in that. I like, I like rice and beans too, quite. <laughs> <You know? laughs> right, it gets the job done, yeah. You know, I mean, really, I mean, it's like it is and to do the things that you love and that you feel good about in and of itself has to be its its reward. Well, we're going to take our, our first break here. Then I want to come back and talk a little bit about more about your art, but then also your involvement with black boys. So we will be right back. This episode of Collections by Michelle Brown is brought to you in partnership with the Center for Peace Counseling and Holistic Healing Services, bringing balance to your mind, body, and spirit. For more information or to schedule an appointment, visit the Center at www.thecenterforpeacellc.com. back here on Collections by Michelle Brown. If you're just joining me, I'm talking to Seattle muralist Xavier Roach. Um, I like your I like your last name, and you use Roach. Or, okay, you got to tell me. Did you get, it's sort of like, did you get teased as a kid, and then you said, no, I'm owning this and making it my own? <laughs> um, no, honestly, I think... Uh, I think I got in trouble a lot as a kid. So people would just originally started out using my full name and then it just kind of went to my last name Mm -hmm. for just like immediate trouble. Like I played, I was captain of my lacrosse team in high school and I wouldn't start playing till the fourth quarter. 
and my coach would scream out Lazy Roach. So people started calling me Lazy Roach for a long time. Uh-huh. And uh, then you just kind of keep breaking it down until it just got to Roach. And I don't know, I, I really enjoy it. My, my, you know, my mom doesn't love it so much, like to pronounce it as Roche, but, you know, I say it's Roach. We got family uh-huh. members from, Jama- from Jamaica that say it's pronounced Roache. You know, it's, it's however you want it. Uh-huh. <laughs> no, it's Roche. No, no, it's Roach. <laughs> Roche, no, it's Roach. You know, yeah, she come out and it, but, but when she comes, okay, and when she sees your work as Roach the muralist, I mean, she's got to, you know, stick her chest out a little bit with pride, like, you know, that's my kid. Yeah, yeah she's, she's very happy and supportive and confused as to why I don't aspire for the big house and the millions of dollars. And But she's like, if you're happy, I'm happy. And I'm like, yeah, I'm pretty happy. So. Were they always supportive of you being an artist? Yeah, my, my entire family works in uh, retail. And mm-hmm. I think at some point there was like a desire for me to get into retail or like a fashion designer or like a tailor or something artistic with clothes. But when I came home and said, I'm, you know, getting a degree in equestrian studies, I think all that went out the window. And they just like accepted that, you know, I'm just going to do things a little differently. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I can see that, you know, well, what are you going to do? Well, I'm getting a degree in equestrian studies. You know, I'll tell you, I, once I told my dad I wanted to learn to play the harp and I wanted to be a harpist. And he said, well, what are you going to do, grow up and be an angel? <laughs> you know, so <laughs> I, if I can hear, I, I, I can just imagine that conference. That sort of looked like, okay. <laughs> yeah. I, I tried to get him down to come to the barns one time and my mom was like, it smells like poop in here. And I was like, yeah, because there's poop everywhere. And then she's like, oh, no, I'm, I'm fine. I'm not going to do this again. And I was like, you know what? To each his own. I'm not mad at you. Mm-hmm. But there's such, I mean, but horse manure, you know. Also, when we were doing that, not only were we doing the murals, we were doing community gardens. And mm-hmm. so, you know, we have like uh, an equestrian division of police department. And we went and, first of all, they were happy to have us come because we were happy to shovel it and then, you know, take it and then reclaim some places mm-hmm. where, you know, you don't know what has been buried underneath it. But over a period of years, we were able to reclaim that earth and do it using raised beds and then grow food on it. So, you know, hey, all hail the horse poop, you know. That's what, that's what I'm saying, yeah. Yeah, that's some powerful, that's some powerful stuff. <laughs> <laughs> so, so, I mean, that's just, just a, so you went from your, your degree in equestrian studies and then you, you're now you're a muralist. You're out here, you're doing it. Danny was saying, like, when he met you, you were playing – uh, the harmonica, and then he started to talk to you and he found out that you were a muralist. What did you think of when he approached you and started to talk to you about this project, Black Boys, and what did you envision seeing it being in your pl- your role in it? Well, I honestly had no idea. As soon as I had finished... Um, doing that set or playing that song and I walked off and Danny came up to me and said, I, I need you to be a part of this thing. I was like, yeah, yeah, sure. That, that sounds good. I'm, I'm always down to be in any kind of project. And then after Danny had left, a couple of my friends were like, do you know who that was? And I was like, I have no, I have no idea who that was. You know, that's a really big deal. You cannot say no. Like you have to be a part of that. And I was like, all right, I'm looking forward <laughs> to it, whatever it is. Yeah. 
Mm-hmm. So I was, I was completely oblivious and unaware and was ready to just dive into whatever it was and give it my best. And lo and behold, it became like one of the most beautiful shows I've ever seen in my entire life. Mm-hmm. Wow. Yeah. yeah it, it's just amazing because, like I said, I've known Danny for a while, and it's like, do you know who that is? I'm like, yeah, it's Danny. That's <laughs> 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 Danny. When you when you were were you working on other art projects at the same time? Uh, yeah, con- constantly. I because I am an independent artist. I've got like five or six projects, kind of just constantly in rotation. Some more demanding than others, but just constantly trying to self promote and get shows and get work and pay rent and you know all that good stuff. Mm-hmm. So, you know, you talked about the developing, because um, I'm going to come back to Black Boys, but this developing of rotating walls, um, how would that be like in a public space? Or how would you, how do you envision that working, to have these rotating walls, these murals? I mean, because some, sometimes you think of murals as being something that's permanent, but this sounds mm-hmm. like, it isn't as permanent as like, you know, something that's going to go up on a wall like forever and, and that wall is just going to look that certain way. Why would yeah. you, or why would you see it that, that what's the value of having these short lived murals and what do you see that doing for the community around it as they interact with it? Um, personally for me, it was uh, something I had been doing for all four years at my university they had a designated graffiti wall that mm. nobody was using. So it was just like cluttered with like, you know, curse words and like crude drawings. And one day after like some exam where they're like, okay, you have the next like four days off to work on whatever you want. I took my car and I drove down to like the local paint store and I got like five gallons of white paint and another five gallons of black paint. And I brought it to this community wall. The wall is like about maybe like four or five stories high. And I like went out and purchased a ladder and I completely cleaned the whole thing. Nice big white slate. And then I just went down and just did some really simple therapeutic line work. And I was like, wow, that felt really good. And I was like, I might just do this every weekend. So I dropped about $45 every weekend to go back and repaint that wall and then the school took notice and they were like we like and support what you're doing do you want to turn it into a club and I was like no I'm okay I'm just going to keep doing this until I get bored mm. and then other artists wanted in they were like where are you buying the paint I was like if you come with me we'll go pick up some paint I'll let you guys paint it but I'm just going to keep painting over it every weekend so that it's always new and then the other students around, like, started documenting it. People, like, started the Tumblr page. And I'm like, I like how much this is drawing everyone in because everyone wants to get in on the next version of it, and it just kind of keeps building and building. And I think people were starting to enjoy the process over the product because eventually they started turning into, like, cookouts in front of this wall where we were, like, flipping burgers and someone was painting and there's music and everyone was just kind of hanging out having a good time. And since I've been in Seattle, that's, like, pretty much all I've been trying to recreate is just like not the sterile gallery feeling, just like the community art kind of atmosphere. Mm-hmm. Are most of them, are, do, are you doing them outside, inside, or a combination? No, it was, it was, it's all, it's all outside. It was just um, this like significantly high 
wall that was like in this courtyard within the university that they were like, you know what, do what you want with it. And I was like, all right. Do you find, because like I said, you know, do you find, how do you, do you do the approach? Because I know like we often would be like driving through an area or, or through community meetings or something, and that would be the idea that, you know, what, what, what this area needs is a mural that, you know, for all the reasons that you talk about the, the value of murals and what it does as far as community conversations and bringing it together, and that's sort mm-hmm. of kind of how we found it. How do you go about, you know, and like you're doing murals all along, how do you go about establishing the relationship with whomever or that space to to do that, do you find the space and go like, okay, are you drawn to this space and feel like it needs something, or are you in conversation with the community or one individual or what? That is almost like I think that might be my favorite part is finding I, – I typically do my best to shoot for small businesses. So I find mm-hmm. a small business that I like and I think I can support, and they've got this beautiful just like blank wall and I walk in and in my best charming persona I walk in with a (laughs) photograph of their bare wall that I have already superimposed a design onto through Photoshop so they don't even have to think about what it possibly could be I walk in and I present this piece of paper and I'm like this is what I would like to give to you do you have the funds to make this happen and I guarantee it's going to be a lot cheaper than you think. And then once you get past that, they're like, yeah, how long would it take you? And it'd be like maybe a weekend, depending on, like, how many colors you want to have in it. And then you kind of just start breaking things down, and then you start lining up dates, and you just go on right on ahead and just execute it. Now, you know, I think that, that now you brought in something that you're using technology to go in there because, I mean, I've worked with people who do murals and they're, and they're, and like they sort of get in and they're doing it and then they have to then they would, would sketch out something and go and the person would say, oh no, I wanted to show this, but you are taking them a very visual idea of what it's going to look like to 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 be on there. What when you come up and you photoshopped it and you've come up with this thing for this store, what influences do you use? Are you using you know it's not a billboard, but there yeah, has yeah. to be some influences. So what influences are you picking up from? Are you picking up something about the character of the store or the store owner or its place? Yeah, you, you want to do your best to um, cater to their interests in terms of whatever kind of service it is that they're providing. And then just kind of af- from my years of experience, I've just been able to kind of fine-tune it and just like lock down what I would assume would fit best. And then maybe two out of ten times there's a suggestion to be made or a different color that should be included. But for the most part, it's kind of just like nailed right on the first try. And then they're like, yeah, how soon can you put it up? I'm very excited. Hmm. You know, I'm going to remember that because, I mean, I was talking to someone just earlier this year and they were talking about, you know, we're thinking about, you know, getting, you know, doing a mural and, you know, to find a spot. And I'm saying, I'm going to say, you know, have you thought about, you know, coming up with the ideal ahead of time? Um, yeah. And, and sort of going to, after it's, it, the finished piece is, is done, 
Okay. Have you ever had someone come back, you know what, uh, or, or while you're in process, that they go like, well, it looked good on what you brought me, but now that it's happening, I'm not feeling it. Could you change this, change that? And how do you do that dance with them that allows you to express your creativity and your vision of it and work with what their impression and feelings might be about the final product. Yeah, uh, 100% you have to be open to suggestions from the people who own the wall or the people who own the business or even the people in the community who may have called the, uh, the owner of the wall and say, hey, I like what that young man is doing across the street, but I would prefer if the name of the business was like a little bit to the left or whatnot and I I always accommodate I, you know because I, I enjoy the process of it so I'm like yeah I'll, I'll, I'll fix it I'll come back two months later and do touch-ups if someone like graffitied it give me a call mm. I'll come by and fix it you know I think the upkeep is like a really big sell it's also a good deterrent for graffiti because just out of respect for for the sake of art people are less likely to tag a mural than to tag a bare wall. So that's another selling point as like, also you get violations from the, from your city if you don't clean up graffiti. So you won't have to, so the business or the company won't have to pay for the removal of graffiti if they pay me once to put up a mural. Hmm. And these are all just kind of like factors that you have to know in order to kind of like further sell yourself. Hmm. Well, you know, the, when they're tagging something, and sometimes, you know, a tag is just like, you know, BS, you know, I'm putting my name yeah. up there, you know, but sometimes it, it might be talking about something, you know, I mean, someone is expressing something. If you go by and you see a space and you see, well, first of all, you see that this owner would probably benefit from your service because this place has been tagged. But do you ever, when you see something in that tag, sort of say, hmm, if I incorporate, this is part of this community that's being expressed here. And in my mural, it's not only about their business, but it's about this neighborhood. Do you, do you get some cues from things that you see? Uh, I personally have not had the opportunity to, but a friend of mine who tags locally, whose name is Twist, I know that when he does murals, he will incorporate, like, small, like, inside jokes or references to the graffiti artists in the community, which is a number one way to make sure that that mural never gets tagged over. It's very clever, uh-huh. but I'm not, I'm not too in the Seattle scene to know about the graffiti kind of culture here. It'd be a completely different story if it was in New York. I would know who to give a shout-out to and what color to do it in, but around here, I'm not, I'm not that plugged uh-huh. in. Mm-hmm. So, you know, you're very, you know, there, it's a lot about public art. What do you see, do you see Seattle being a permanent home for you? Or do you see later on, like going someplace else, or just like on a visit, taking what you've learned from doing public art there and apply and sharing it with in other communities? No, I, I really do or I currently am taking the steps and the stride necessary to become an international artist. And I would not lock myself in as a permanent Seattle resident. 
I don't know, I'm mm-hmm. still kind of open to it. I mean, I don't get me wrong, I love this place, but, you know, I'm still only, like, 23. I, I could go to Italy next month, you know, fall in love and mm-hmm. camp out there, but... Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, so let's go back to Black Boys. So tell me, how did that work? Did you listen to the whole ideal of things and come up with, like you said, how you come up with your Photoshop and show it and, and do that? Or how did you take that piece and what it was talking about? and come up with the art that you presented in it? Well, when I originally uh, spoke with Danny, like the very first time, I mentioned to Danny that I make my own chalk. And Mm. Danny became very excited about the idea of doing large-scale chalk drawings or some variation of that. And I started, like, building chalk boards and putting things together and, like, trying to come up with some designs. But after, like, being in the space and seeing a rehearsal, I realized that the quality that the line of the chalk wouldn't really translate because all the movement and the and the mood is just more like rooted in something like more earthy and just kind of ephemeral. I've mm-hmm. I've really kind of walked into this realm of appreciation for ephemeral art because it is so much process over pro- over product and what I developed for Black Boys was doing uh, illustrations with just water that would evaporate mm. almost before I was done drawing it. Wow. So, I mean, that's, that's just like a, incredible. So did each night, did you have to, you just went in and did it again? Yeah, it was a, I mean, Danny left it extremely open-ended. My guidelines or my rule book was basically just to feel it and react to what the music and the dancers were doing. So I had no no set uh, schedule or agenda, just kind of going up there and just feeling, feeling it out. Did you feel like you were a part of the piece? You know, you, you, I, aren't, you aren't just like set designer. I mean, you are going up there and making it and each night I mean because even if you're doing the same thing each night between the audience between the interaction there's a different feel there's a different vibe did did you feel that each night like maybe something a little different like I mean were you moved by were you caught up in the whole motion of it of of, uh, the emotion the movement of the piece yeah so as soon as the lights came up I really kind of got lost in it but me as a visual artist the second night was like the roughest night it was like you want me to do this again like i already did it the first time like perfect Uh so it was just like a real struggle of like you know we we do this multiple times to the best of our ability and like getting into the swing of that which is a little rough but yeah once the lights came up it just kind of felt like you know this is it this is happening you know how Having gone through that, I mean, and, you know, I, I just have to, I just know that it was successful just from what I've been reading and what Danny has told me. How did it affect you? Having gone through, like, everything from, you know, the, like you talked about how the rehearsal period and how, you know, the closeness that everyone got, you know, and being in part of this 
and then going through all that. How did being a part of that affect you? Uh, definitely not the same person I was going into it. I've never been in a space filled to the brim with extremely talented black artists. That's, that's never been a thing I've experienced. And I feel like for the longest time, I just kind of felt like I was kind of flowing around by myself, like looking for people and spaces, but never successfully finding them. But after Black mm-hmm. Boys, it was just like, no, we're, we're out here and we're here for you. And you work hard and we all work hard and we're all, you know, we're making it happen. And it just it was like a really good, refreshing thing to find out and now know. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I mean, because it was, I mean, because when he was telling me the different people who were working with them and, you know, I mean, it was just like everybody was able to come together and he said, everyone said yes. And, but then, you know, it's just like such a powerful piece. And then here you're all, they're doing it and you're bringing different parts to it. But each part was important. Yeah, and so I thought that that was just like, that was just like really phenomenal. And the way that, you know, like I said, people came together. And I thought that that was really, you know, the different music, all like that. Is this kind of project, do you ever envision yourself being involved in that type of project again? Or was it like, wow, that was, that was pretty intense. I don't know if I want to do that again. <laughs> I, I can honestly say that, like, I will be striving for the rest of my life to recreate that the feeling that that project gave me. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And the way that you use, like you said, how how you used the water and it evaporated and doing that, was that a, did you, was that a technique you used before or did you just like, in seeing how things were coming together, is that something that you developed? And what made you, how did you come up with that concept of doing that? You know, I mean, I can see chalk. I mean, everything that you talked about, I could see in my mind, chalk, this, but that, you know, it was just like, wow, where do you, where do you pull that out of? Yeah, I, I've always had like a interest or slight passion for performance, performance illustration or live drawing, but in all the avenues that I've ever seen it executed, I've just been thoroughly disappointed and like inside myself, I'm like, I know there's a way to make this happen and make it happen successfully. And I stumbled upon this, uh, I want to say, Chinese type of calligraphy that's called Dishu, or D-I-S-H-U, where in China it is 100% legal to write calligraphy on the floors of like public parks in water and the line quality that they produce is just absolutely beautiful. They're doing it on slate tiles and it's just, it looks like it's from brush to ink, but it evaporates. So no harm done. And it's just a very beautiful, beautiful process. And I got the idea to make it vertical so that you could do it in front of a crowd, but then you have to take into consideration the water dripping and, you know, kind of just the whole transition of it kind of flips all the sciences of how it works on its head. And our original plan was to line the back wall of the stage in slate. Realized that one tile of slate weighs like maybe 15 to 20 pounds. 
So uh-huh. lining a wall in it would be extremely heavy and extremely expensive and is really not very practical. And we went through a couple different variations because once I presented this to Danny, Danny was like, this has to be a part of it. So I think one day during rehearsal, I just kind of like took my bucket of water and my brush and I just kind of like tried to draw a line on the bare back wall of the dance studio. And in that kind of like dim-ish lighting, it made a very distinct and definitive line. So sort of experimenting with it, seeing how long the image would stay. And Danny stated that our lighting designer, Amiya, would be able to make the image pop off the wall. So once Mm. the lighting designer and I got to talking and we realized it was able to pull this off and we could even like possibly time how long the image stays based on how many lights hit it or how hot we made the wall or like the temperature of the room and just like got all the sciences down. It was just, yeah, it was, it was really worth it. You know, now that you mention it, you know, it's something that I've seen and I, you know, it seems that I recall seeing and they were talking about um, an Asian, someone doing, writing a story or something on the floor Mm-hmm. And, you know, now that now that you mention it, you know, that sort of flashes on me, you know, and I'm one of those big public television nerds. So I know it was on something that I was watching on that. <laughs> but, you know, now that you mention it, I do sort of remember seeing something about that. How, where did you first hear about that? Uh, I'm constantly just kind of scouring the Internet looking mm-hmm. for inspiration of some kind. So I definitely found it on some, like, uh, I don't hmm. know, international YouTube page or something like that. Mhm, mhm. Wow. Do you ever, you know, did you have people afterwards come up and go like, hey, how did you do that? Or, I mean, I think that I would have been like, so I would have had to come and say, how did you do that? You know, or, or to, to want to, I could see even like a one night like installation where you were there somewhere and you were doing it. I mean, how would that, how, how amazing that would be to come into a space and to watch you do that. And then to see that, you know, not only within the, the context of like black boys, but just to have you in a space to do it, you know, to come one night and to see and to watch you, you, you just do it. You know, what yeah, did that, you, kind of... Mhm. I mean, that's just kind of what I'm, I'm working on right now is trying to how to make a portable version of it so that I can do multiple shows like that. Well, you know, I'll buy a ticket. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> that, that know, is appreciate fast- it. I mean, that is just like fascinating <laughs> to me. You know, it sounds to me like you went to school. Uh, you've learned. You've learned from your walk through life, but you're continually learning and experimenting and and doing developing your art yeah constantly it's a it is not a hobby it's definitely a you know for lack of a better word a disease because if i don't engage in that part of myself for a number of days i physically feel sick and i need to release Mm. something or create something so it's just one of those things where I don't do this because it's a choice or because I like the lifestyle. It's like because I, I physically need to get these ideas out. I need to see them exist in reality. They can't just mm-hmm. keep bouncing around in my head. 
Okay, well, we're going to take a second quick break, and um, we'll be right back. Collections by Michelle Brown airs every Thursday at 7 p.m. You can subscribe now and listen to the podcast on Blog Talk Radio, iTunes, Stitcher, or SoundCloud. Be sure to like the Collections by Michelle Brown Facebook page and mark your calendar so you never miss an episode. back here on Collections by Michelle Brown with Seattle muralist Roach. I like that. Roach Roche. <laughs> what was that one? Roache? Uh, Roache, but, yeah. Uh, you know, but we'll call him Roach. You know, that is, you know, I understand exactly what you mean because, like, I write and sometimes I have to write you know, it's something that, you know, like it's something that you hear this voice or something that's moving you to, you have to do it. And when you don't feel those urges or hear that voice or something moving it to you, you know, you're just sort of like, you're not yourself, you know. So, right. um, so when you don't have a wall, where do you, where do you, where do you draw? Where do you... What what do you uh, take on the place? I always have a wall. I've got this mm. uh, eight foot by four foot tall chalkboard in my apartment. I do my best not to draw small. Mm-hmm. I do my best to make drawing a whole body activity. So when you're doing it, it's an, and okay, and it's just like how you had the one wall and you would paint it and then you would change it. And then you have mm-hmm. a chalkboard, and I imagine that when you get ready to change it, you clear it and then start all over. But do you photograph? Do you keep some of those things? You know, do you ever have someone go like, "Oh, that's so beautiful! Don't stop! Leave it! Leave it!" And but in your mind, you're going. You know that you're going to redo that wall or do something. Do you collect them, or how Honestly, do you? I, I don't document mm-hmm. as much as I should. I think that's one of the reasons why I surround myself with musicians and dancers because the way that I approach art is very similar. It's something that I can always do again and do better so I'm not tied down to the product or the result of it. It's just a thing that I need to get out of my body real quick and then if I like the idea, I'll come back to it sometime later down the line. But yeah, no, no ties to the actual actual thing. Mm-hmm. Hmm. Is that, you know, like a prerequisite when you go into, like, now the murals that you do, like, on someone's business, you don't go back and change those. Those That's that's what they've got they've got, or yeah, do you have that less. option? I mean, I'll, I'll come back and do touch-ups, but mm-hmm. unless they want a whole new mural, I'm not really 
change in font mm-hmm. or subject matter. Mm-hmm. I think that it, I mean, it is just like, and first of all, it amazed me when you said how young you were, because it's like life is an adventure. I mean, and, you, and you've had these, these huge experiences and it sort of, it sort of comes out. Do you ever have like young people or their parents, you know, who sort of come up and go like, well, you know, little James, he thinks he wants to do this. And I told him it's hard work. What do you tell them, you know, and, and, you know, or do they want you to like discourage them or do you ever find yourself in spaces where you are actually encouraging a young person to, you know, live their dream, to, to, to do that drawing, to, to find that space? Yeah, no, 100%. I actually even teach these workshops that are based on this style of drawing that I've developed that I call restorative sketching. And it's rooted in trying and failing and doing a poor job but enjoying the process of failing. And it's all on this six-foot by six-foot circular chalkboard that I kind of show up to schools and universities with and I play these games and exercises that I've come up with just to kind of get people to just stop taking themselves so seriously and stop putting all this weight on them and just remember that being creative is just enough of a reward in its own. It's just enjoy being creative. Remember to play. Play is very important. When you, you use the word restorative, who are you restoring? Are, the, are you helping people restore that child and them that creativeness in themselves, restoring that. Exactly, because, I mean, at that certain age, no one is afraid to draw. No one is self-conscious of their drawing ability. They're like, I have an idea. This pen and paper are going to help me bring that idea to life. And that's it. I'm just trying to get people back into that mindset. Mm-hmm. When you go to schools, what's the reaction to that? You know, because uh, like, I've done writing workshops with kids and, like, the teachers at one moment will be surprised that the kids are writing, and then I'll say, well, you know, I just let them write. You know, it's not perfect. Mm-hmm. It's not the way that you want it. I just let them write because they have stories to tell. When you come in and you go in with these workshops, what's the – how has how teachers dealing with that, accepting that? Are they cool with it or, you know, they go like, okay, well, this is fun, but do they really get what what you're doing with it? I think after, like, the first 10 minutes, they see their students get extremely fired up and mm-hmm. just completely dive into it because the way that I structure it, I make it, it's, it's, uh, it's almost like a, like a game show. I have a clock. I put 30 <laughs> seconds on the clock, and mm-hmm. I pin two teams or two students up against each other, and I yell out a word and their job is to render that word in one line and then the hmm. crowd behind us votes on who did it best. So it's not who's the best drawer, it's like who can get their idea across faster. That's all. So all it is is just a way of communicating through the visual and just making your making yourself uh, easier to understand or just kind of breaking it down to bare bones of just like, I have this idea, this is what it is, can you guys see what I'm trying to communicate? Uh-huh. 
Hmm. Uh, that'd be, that'd be kind of cool. You know, I could see that, you know. <laughs> do you ever have, like, do you ever try and do that same type of exercise, that same type of workshop with those who are out of school, with adults, you know, who've been maybe have gotten so caught up into that, you know, that structure, those silos that, mm-hmm. you know, to get them to do that? I have not uh, run the workshop with adults who do not identify as artists. I've only run it with adults who do identify as artists. And those adults, in the very first 10 minutes, they start to hate it because there's, like, there's no structure, <laughs> there's, no, there's no way to win this. And then once they understand, like, oh, it's not for you to win, it's for you to just play and not, you know, not right. stress out. It's just, it's just a way for you to just, you know, express yourself. Mm-hmm. Even with all those years of practice and, and skill and master, masterfulness, which probably isn't a word, but all those years of practice mean nothing now. Now I need you to render a boat with one line in 30 seconds, make it happen. <laughs> make it happen. I like that. I like that. <laughs> Run your boat. Thirty seconds. Make it happen. Okay. <laughs> I like. I like that. I can see that. I can see. Actually, it sounds like a lot of fun. You know, it really does. It, it is like a lot of fun. Yeah. Mhm. Wow. Wow. So, what's next? What do you see next for you? I mean, are you? What's your next projects like? What do you see? What's the next thing that you want to tackle? I'm pretty positive that I am supposed to be moving forward the art of live painting to some degree. My next show that I have planned out, I am doing more work with light and like with projectors and still images and those kind of overhead projectors that you used way back in school. And mm. just... Wow, you know, because um, it was funny. I was talking to somebody and they were saying, "Do you remember those old?" And it's like, "Well, where do you find them?" Yeah, because <laughs> you go in schools now. They don't, you know. It's like I remember seeing those, but it's like you know we've moved so much. You know, you've got the PowerPoint and stuff and all that stuff going on. Yeah, where, uh, where, where? I find them on Craigslist for like twenty dollars, which is fantastic. Wow. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Wow. So, okay, so that's your next one. Um, do you, so, I mean, this has just, like, been, like, very fascinating, the things that you're doing, the fact that you're out there, and, and you know, just seeing the art that's around you and these ideals coming to you, you know, from, I mean, the water, and now you're doing light. You know, it, it's just, like, so... Fascinating. Now, you at one point that how do you see? Because you said that um, to have conversations. How do you see that your, your art can have conversations on politics? Or politics can be like so hard. You know what I mean? It can be like harsh. But how mm. can you you bring that into art through murals without being divisive? How do you or or do you find a way that you can just the opposite that by pulling it into art, it will maybe stop some of the divisiveness. Is that something that you see coming through murals? Is that, is that a possibility? 
Uh, through think? my work, it, it's always been on the, maybe not the second or the third, but like maybe on like the fifth layer underneath. I don't know if you're familiar with the artist Kira Walker, but she does really beautiful and playful silhouettes of like children in like old timey, like folky uh, vignettes and whatnot. But if you look a little bit harder, you can see that like in these vignettes, people are like being lynched and raped, but mm-hmm. through this very playful lens, which at first glance you'd be like, oh, that's that's cute, that's very kitsch, but then you have to you have to absorb it and look a little bit harder. And I do that in my work pretty often of just keeping it very colorful and playful. But then if you read the underlining subtext, then you see like it's it's about something nine out of ten times political or something that I've battled with in my day-to-day. Mm-hmm. Hmm. You know what I think I have, because as you're talking about it, it seems that I have seen something... And it's like that, and it's like how you look through and you look at it, you dig, you know, it's not one of those things that you, you just sort of look at it, it's something that you go back and you look at it again. I mean, it also, you know, but that's one of the things about murals and the beauty of them. I think that knowing that we have like the Diego Rivera mural, it's one of those ones that you can go and sit and as you look at it, you see deep deep layers of it. And I think that's maybe one of the, the benchmarks of muralism that, it is also telling this story, and it's a story that's layered. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Wow. Well, I mean, I mean, Danny has already got me like, you know, he said he's going to come back this way, and I said, well, you know what? I'm thinking I need to come to Seattle because, you know, when, yeah. he, when he talked about the arts and stuff, I mean, it's something that I'd really like to see. I'd really love to see your murals because I have seen – like we like over a 10 year period seeing these murals go up, seeing the power and the impact that they can have on the community. And, yeah. you know, and like I said, like when, the, when Renee was talking about this one and it is in an area that many people would say, Oh, you know, it's so hard, but that mural talks about the resilience and the strength of the people. And the fact that even though as you look as, parts of this neighborhood has gone down, that that mural has not been bothered. It hasn't been tagged. It's still there. It's because mm-hmm. it still speaks to that neighborhood and that community. So yeah. um, I really appreciate and value the work that you're doing, and I hope to get out that way one day so I can see it. Well, thank you very much. I'm sure that when you do decide to come out, I will be in the middle of a project, and I would love for you to come help me out. Okay. Yeah, that sounds great. Well, I want to thank you for being with me and for taking the time um, to talk to me tonight, to talk about what you're doing. Uh, I think that, you know, it's a message that, you know, the fact that you just sort of went out there and did it. I'm just like, (laughs) I mean, that's so cool. You know, it's like you just went out there and did it. You know, you went and studied the question study. I mean, you went out and you did murals, and now you're out there, and, and and the power, like, you know, you answered that email, and you had a show. I mean, that's just like, <laughs> that to me is like really inspirational and reminds you, you know, to live your dream and do what you love. So I want to thank Always. you. I want to thank you so much um, for being with me tonight and taking the time to talk with me about your work. 
Well, I want to thank you for having me. I really do appreciate it and have really enjoyed our talk. Okay. Well, look, you have a a good night. Rest, relax, and um, I will stay in touch with you. And like I said, I'm a, I'm gonna get out there. <laughs> I'm gonna get out there, right. and you're gonna and, and you know what? And you're gonna say to me, Michelle, you got ten seconds. Give me a boat. <laughs> <laughs> That's what I'm talking about. Yeah. <laughs> I'll see you soon, man. Okay, well, thank you, Rach. Good night. Take care. I want to thank today's guest, Seattle-based artist, Brandon Xavier Roach, known by many simply as Roach the Muralist. You can listen to this or past episodes of the show on SoundCloud, iTunes, Stitcher, or Blog Talk Radio. Be sure and like the Collections by Michelle Brown Facebook page and let us know if you have a suggestion for a guest or topic for a future show. Join us next week when I'll introduce you to another amazing individual living between the lines, standing boldly in the crosshairs of their intersectionality and creating change. That's right here on Collections by Michelle Brown. Thank you for listening. With Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.